The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Well, this has been a rough weekend. Some of you uh, decided at some point in the last few years that you were done with the NFL, done with the Ravens. Others of us were very, very heartbroken last night. I think part of what was rough was it it wasn't like a heartbreaking loss at the last minute. We just sucked the whole game through (laughs) in all three phases. It was just, it was awful. I, yeah. That made me very sad. And I was also made very sad when I learned on Friday that Neil Peart had died. Some of you may be aware, Neil Peart, who was the drummer for the band Rush, my favorite band. Uh, turns out he died on Tuesday after a three-year struggle with brain cancer. Um, and it's interesting that these events happened in conjunction, at least interesting to me, in conjunction with our texts for this morning, because in many ways what we have with the Ravens and Neil Peart is kind of the opposite of what we get with the passage that that Matt read out of Isaiah. You see, one of the reasons that those who love the Ravens and specifically Lamar Jackson love him so much is that they're has been throughout this entire season an attitude of grinding, an attitude of bearing down and doing the work necessary to do. And we've seen tremendous improvement. We certainly saw it, well, until last night, we saw it, uh, a dramatic improvement in Lamar Jackson's performance from that horrible game, the wild card game that my wife and I were there for, to a 14-2 and two season. And a number of people were, were charmed and thrilled a few weeks back when he got up to the podium at a press conference after the game and he was wearing a t-shirt. Anybody remember what that t-shirt said? Nobody cares. Work harder. Nobody cares. Work harder. In a lot of, way that, a lot of ways that was the ethos of, of Neil Peart and really the entire band. These were three guys who came out of the suburbs from 
uh, well, the, the other two bandmates in the suburbs, Neil was more from a rural area. His parents owned a, a, a uh, farm equipment dealership at uh, Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson. The other two were children of basically survivors of the horrors of Europe. Getty Lee, the bass player and singer, his parents were Holocaust survivors. And Alex Lifeson was the child of people who managed to escape Yugoslavia under communist rule. And they scratched and scraped from nothing to establish a solidly lower middle class lifestyle in the suburbs of Toronto. And and a number of critics have, have noted that in their music, Rush has that fiercely middle brow sensibility. These are not people who would expect to be hanging around in special places and salons. They would, would not be the sort who would look down their nose at something that was seen to be too pedestrian. They, these guys loved all the good music that they, that they loved growing up on. In fact, they even released an entire album of covers, which you know a band like that never does. They released a whole album of covers honoring the great music of The Who and Cream and all these bands that they grew up on. But they were also the hardest working band in show business. If James Brown was the hardest working man, they would have been the hardest working band. In their early days, they played 200 gigs a year. They would go from town to town playing just about any place they could. They, of course, developed their chops doing that. They were notorious as being one of those groups that everybody who was learning how to play guitar or bass or drums would just spend hours and hours of fascinated time with trying to trying to learn how to do what they did. They also were one of those bands that had the tendency to turn off people who really didn't love them. It's kind of an acquired taste for some. I'm grateful that one of my daughters acquired the taste, and so she and I got to go to a number of concerts together over the years. My wife still rolls her eyes and then demands that the music be turned off. But with both these, uh, these great musicians and with these great football players, the ethos is very much one of nobody cares, work harder. People pay good money to come and see a show. People pay good money to come and see a game, and they expect that the people who are there will have put in the work necessary to do what they do at the exceedingly high level that they do it. And really, that is what it takes to perform at that level. My other daughter, who, despite her other fine qualities, does not appreciate Rush, she's preparing to apply to conservatories. She wants to become a musician in a major symphony orchestra. The amount of time and energy that she puts into developing as a musician is astonishing. And I say this as somebody who had quite a bit of ambition myself when I was in high school at her age. Nobody cares. Work harder. The fact is, though, that for most of us, most of the time, and certainly for all of us, at least some of the time, that message, nobody cares, work harder, hits you right here. Because it is a message of condemnation. It's a declaration of failure. 
okay? You feel tired. You feel worn out. You feel hurt. You feel embarrassed because of your performance. Nobody cares. Work harder. Certainly when we listen to sports talk tomorrow morning, that will be the message from everybody calling in, complaining about how much these guys get paid and what a lousy job they did. Nobody cares. Work harder. Thanks be to God. His message for us is not, nobody cares. Work harder. His message for us is a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And that's demonstrated abundantly in this passage from the Gospel where Jesus comes from Galilee all the way over to the Jordan in order to be baptized by John. Now, John was as confused by this as all of us are when we read this. I mean, John's baptism, what kind of baptism was it? It wasn't a baptism by which people received the Spirit, as we find in, uh, in the book of Acts, as we practice in our church. No, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. The baptism that John performed was one that symbolized a cleansing. People went into the water, in a sense, recognizing their filthiness. They came out, hopefully turned in a different direction. That's what repentance means. And so, what on earth did Jesus need to be baptized for repentance for? What did he have to repent of? We know that he was without sin. He was made like us in every way, and yet he was without sin. He never did anything wrong, so there was nothing for him to be cleansed of. There was nothing that he needed to repent of. He didn't have to turn around at all. He was already always going the right direction. So why? And John asks, "What? <laughs> you need to be baptizing me. What do you mean? I'm supposed to baptize you. But Jesus says, no, we need to do this. It is necessary for us to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. And John went along with it. Theologians speak of Jesus as the federal head of the human race. That doesn't have anything to do with our government or reserve banks. Jesus as the federal head of the human race is the one who, on our behalf, as us, representing all humanity, submitted himself to John's baptism. He had nothing to repent of, but we sure do. He had no sin that stained him, but all of us do. And so when he said it's necessary to do this to fulfill all righteousness or justice, he was doing himself what all of us needed to do. 
And as soon as he did, just as he got up out of the water, that very moment heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove and a light upon him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. I want to be clear what is not going on here. Some over the years have had the idea that Jesus was just some guy and that at the baptism when the Spirit came upon him, then he really became divine, then he became God's Son. That could not be further from the truth if we take seriously what the authors of Scripture have to say to us. After all, John in the beginning of his gospel says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, by the way, it's Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus. Just this morning, those of us who are reading through the Bible in a year, we're talking about those first chapters of Genesis. In the beginning, when there was nothing else, in the beginning already He was there. He was God. He was with God in the beginning. And through Him all things were made. And without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. Paul says in his letter to the Colossians, he puts it this way, Paul says that He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. He didn't become the image of the invisible God at His baptism. He is. By Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. Everything was created by Him and for Him. He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead in order that that in all things He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, things on earth, things in heaven, all things by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. This, my friends, is the good news of God's love for us. That by Christ's faithfulness, by His merits, we are able to enter into the presence of Almighty God. Apart from Him, nobody cares work harder, and you're not going to make it. It's never going to be good enough. It's never going to be good enough. And if you don't believe it, turn on sports radio and imagine that you're a a football player hearing about how you're not good enough and nobody cares. You just need to work harder. But God's message to us is that a bruised reed he will not break. Smoldering wick He will not snuff out. He receives us. He loves us. He welcomes us as His own, not because of any righteous things that we have done, not because we worked harder, not because we were especially impressive at doing whatever it is that we did. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do what we do well. We absolutely should do that. It's not an excuse for not working. 
But my point is that that hard work isn't what earns us any favor on God's part. That's all done on God's part. He loves us as we are. And so when we come to the altar, we come not having spiffed ourselves up. We come having confessed our sins because we affirm that we are sinful and we need His forgiveness, but we do not for a second think that somehow we have earned the right to have a seat at His table. We come strictly by His grace, which He poured out for us through Christ, who loves us, who is our Lord. Amen.